Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. So I've already done an episode on the constitutionality of immigration laws. I've done an episode on the moral implications of immigration. What I haven't discussed yet or had a guest on to discuss is the economics of immigration. So today I have a guest that's capable of doing just that. He's a law professor at George Mason University, and he's the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. And he's also sort of our resident legal expert here, Professor Ilya Soman. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, as I said, you're a law professor and you're known for your constitutional writings. What background do you have in economics? It's a good question. I'm not a professional economist. However, like many law professors and social scientists generally, I use economic methodology in much of my work, including my work on issues related to immigration and freedom of movement more generally. So I am familiar with the economic literature on immigration, and I have made contributions to it to some degree, including in, a, in an article that's about to be published in Public Affairs Quarterly, which is called Immigration and the Economic Freedom of Natives, which talks about, among other things, the impact of immigration on the economies of receiving countries and the economic impact of, of immigrants on natives. Uh, so uh, economics is a discipline whose methods uh, and tools have been used extensively outside the economics field and law is one of those fields which has made a lot of use of economic methodology. I also have some political science background. Political science has also uh, borrowed from economics a lot. And I have peer-reviewed publications, including that article, but also my book, Free to Move, which deal at least in part with economic issues related to, uh, to immigration. So uh, if it's a matter of my credentials, uh, there they are. The robust, rather robust credentials. <laughs> Okay, there's a lot of myths out there, at least I think they're myths, but I want to start broadly. Uh, overall on the economy, what, what are the effects of immigration on economic growth? So there's some variation, but overall immigration boosts economic growth greatly, both in receiving countries specifically and in the world as a whole. Indeed, economists estimate that if we had free migration throughout the world, uh, world GDP would be double uh, what it currently is, or at least it would double within a, you know, a couple of decades. Uh, and there's various reasons for that, but the biggest and most obvious uh, is that currently there are many millions of people uh, that are trapped in societies where because the government is oppressive or dysfunctional, no matter how smart those people are, how hard they work, they have little or no chance of escaping poverty. If some or many of those people can move to the United States or to Western Europe or Japan or other places where there are better legal, political, and economic systems, those people can almost immediately become much more productive. Uh, current estimates say that if an immigrant from, say, Central America or Mexico, if they come to the U.S., they can immediately we'd be 50% to even as much as 80 or 100% more productive than they are in their countries of origin. And they become still more productive over time because they have opportunities to improve their skills, uh, which are usually greater in their countries of origin. Uh, and obviously that benefits the immigrants themselves. They get 
a good proportion of that doubling of world GDP that would occur if we had free migration, but it also benefits the rest of us because if immigrants are more productive, the rest of us benefit, we buy the things that they produce, we benefit from the innovations they make, uh, and uh, also uh, if they're doing certain jobs in certain sectors, they free the rest of us up to do other things that you know we are more uh, suited to. Uh, so to take just a trivial example, uh, if an immigrant mows my lawn uh, and, and does it better or, or at least uh, more cheaply than I could do myself, that frees me up to do what, other things. It benefits the immigrant, obviously, but it also benefits me and it benefits the people who consume my services because I can then devote more time to the things that I do. And when you magnify that over millions of people, uh, you get a massive boost in productivity. Uh, finally, immigrants are relative to natives on average are more likely to make scientific and other innovations. So they give a big boost to science, including medical advances of various kinds. And they're also on average more likely to start businesses than natives, which improves things for consumers, but also provide job opportunities for many people, including natives. Uh, obviously, most entrepreneurs, when they find when they establish new businesses, uh, they employ people as a result, and that creates new job opportunities. I won't argue that there are never any negative uh, economic effects of immigration on anybody. That's obviously not true. Uh, we can talk about some possible negative effects. You may ask questions about them, but the positive effects are overwhelming and they're far larger than uh, any plausible negative ones. Well, for the negative ones, there, there's an argument that is frequently made, especially in this age of Trumpian populism, you know, that immigrants are coming here and they're stealing our jobs. Now, aside from the fact that the idea of our jobs is completely ridiculous, is there any truth to the fact that incoming immigrants lead to unemployment in the native population? Very little. Uh, first of all, there's little, if any, historical evidence that immigration can increase unemployment. Indeed, Overall, it's the contrary because immigrants are, as I mentioned before, disproportionately entrepreneurs relative to natives and therefore they create new jobs in that way. It is true, obviously, that any given immigrant can potentially compete with jobs for jobs with a native. That can happen. Uh, however, uh, you, while I might be negatively affected by an immigrant who comes in and competes with me, uh, uh, I benefit enormously from the fact that other immigrants come into other sectors, improve the quality of products, reduce the price and so forth. And that second effect uh, greatly outweighs for most people and makes my wages higher. There is some evidence uh, that uh, immigration in the United States reduces wages for native-born high school dropouts, but the, the effect, but the effect for every other part of the population uh, is that it actually increases their purchasing power, and that's not even taking account of long-term economic growth. Uh, in the way that immigration improves that. If your concern is, well, what about native high school dropouts? Then uh, in, in my book, Free to Move, I talk about how there can be keyhole solutions for negative effects of immigration that don't require actually excluding the immigrants. So I mentioned earlier, the vast additional wealth is created by immigration. If you wanted to, you can repurpose that wealth to do something like increase wage subsidies, 
for whatever group of native born workers you think deserve higher wages than they currently have. We already have the earned income tax credit, which does this for poor workers generally. If you wanted to, you could increase that EITC for people in particular sectors you think are being negatively affected. Or alternatively, you could say that, you know, we want the native born high school dropouts to uh, take responsibility for their own situation more and improve their credentials and have more incentive to do so. But if you really do believe that it's unfair or problematic, if their weight that their wages might be reduced by competition, then the reasonable solution to that is wage subsidies, rather than making all of us poor by keeping productive people out, and also, in many cases, confining them to a lifetime of poverty and oppression. There are also obviously other things we can do to improve the lot of native-born poor people, many of which we should do regardless of whether we have more immigration than we currently do or not. I've read that, in reality, immigrants, immigrants in general compete with each other rather than with the native-born population. Is there any accuracy to that? There is a lot of accuracy. It's obviously not true that no immigrant ever sure. competes with natives. They do in some instances, uh, but uh, it is true that, re that 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 new immigrants disproportionately compete with other new immigrants, particularly other new immigrants from the same areas and with the same kinds of skills. Uh, and studies uh, by a number of economists find that uh, new immigrants are often disproportionately concentrated in sectors which uh, either they have a particular skill in or which don't require a lot of English language ability. And sometimes there's even econ what economists call complementarity, that is having more people doing job A actually increases the income of people doing job B because those, those jobs interrelate to each other. So if you think about a restaurant, uh, if you look at a restaurant, the people who serve as waiters are disproportionately likely to be either natives or immigrants who've been here for a long time and therefore they're more assimilated, their English language skills are better, whereas the people who work in the back in the kitchen are disproportionately likely to be recent immigrants because language skills are less crucial for somebody who works in a kitchen for obvious reasons uh, than for somebody who needs to speak to customers. So if there's more good cooks and cleaners, that creates more job opportunities for waiters and vice versa. So in that respect, having more immigrants in the industry actually increases opportunities for natives uh, and obviously the other way as well. Uh, so uh, as I said before, it is not my position that there is never job competition sure. between immigrants and natives. That would be absurd to say something like that. But overall, uh, once you recognize the effects of the immigrants who do jobs other than your own and the effects of immigrant entrepreneurs and scientific and innovators and the like, uh, these positive effects outweigh the negative ones for the vast majority of natives. Just think about how immigrants in the United States have been crucial to a high proportion of our scientific and technical and commercial innovations. In many cases, medicines and vaccines and the like that might save your life uh, and have already saved millions of lives, they could not have been achieved without immigrants. And if we increase immigration, reduce barriers, we can have more of those innovations. So it's true, uh, setting aside the fact that I'm an immigrant myself, it is arguable that there are immigrant academics who compete with me. And if there were fewer of those people, maybe I'd be a professor at a higher rank university or I'd have a higher salary. On the 
the other hand, my life expectancy would probably be lower uh, without those immigrants. And the quality and price of the products that I buy across many sectors uh, would be worse than it is. So I would almost certainly be worse off on net. Uh, and on balance, I'd rather be a, a slightly poorer but much longer lived professor at the school that I am now, and one with you know, much better access to all sorts of products innovation than be a professor at a you know modestly higher ranked school, but not have all of those uh, other things. Uh, a good analogy is how you know the entry of minorities, and I'm sorry, I need to turn off this linger here, uh, that the entry of minorities and women into the workforce in a certain sense, you could say that was terrible for white males, right? Because white males suddenly had to compete with these people. Like imagine you're a white baseball player uh, in the major leagues when the major leagues were integrated and there was some white baseball player who ended up out of the major leagues because Jackie Robinson took his spot, right? Uh, and that person I'm sure was very disappointed, but overall opening up opportunities to women and minorities, not only was beneficial to male white male workers, uh, but not always beneficial to those groups, but it was beneficial to white males as well because it made society vastly more productive. Uh, and uh, so while in a few cases you can point to isolated cases like, you know, the guy who Jackie Robinson replaced, and if he never got into the major leagues at all, you can say on net he was worse off because of the civil rights movement than uh, the opening up of jobs to blacks. And on net, you could say like, you know, there, there, there's a female professor that I can think of at Yale Law School, and she does some of the same kind of work as I do, and she she's more successful at it than I am. So maybe if women were barred from being law professors, maybe I would have her job. And in that sense, women, the emancipation of women was a bad thing for me, you could say. But overall, that possible negative effect is vastly swamped by all the many beneficial innovations that women make that men can also benefit from. And the same thing applies to relationship between immigrants to natives, letting them be productive, letting them compete for jobs. Well, in particular instances, they might outcompete a native uh, and prevent them from getting the job that they want or something like that. On balance, there are these vast economic benefits to natives, just as white men like you and me, I'm guessing that you're white, but white men like you and me have benefited from opening opportunities to women and minorities within the United States. Uh, so you mentioned that there might be some effects on the wages of high school dropouts. Yes. Now, a basic law in economics is that if demand stays the same for any given product, but the supply increases, the price will go down. Why doesn't that happen in the case of immigration? In other words, you have an increase in the labor supply. Why isn't the price of labor being drastically reduced? So, so, the, so, so the answer to that is, is twofold. One is, uh, if you really do hold everything else completely constant, uh, then, then you do get that effect. Uh, however, everything else is not actually held constant because you have all these other effects like increased innovation, uh, increased productivity, lower prices for products that people consume, uh, which means that their wages go further uh, in their capacity as consumers. And then finally, uh, 
it's also the case that obviously in more immigrants also consume things and therefore they create additional demand for various kinds of products, including of course, products produced by natives. So uh, in any initial situation, natives or, or at least longtime immigrants already here combined with natives own the vast majority of productive assets in society, land, capital, investment and so forth. And so when more labor comes, that increases the value of those assets. Uh, and that's, uh, and of course, the extra innovation produced by immigrants increases them even more. So that conjecture is correct. If you imagine a world that's completely fixed and static, except for the addition of a certain ad additional number of laborers, then you would have just an effect where natives benefit in their capacity as consumers, uh, but at least some natives are harmed in their capacity as workers. Uh, but uh, uh, but the but there are other beneficial effects which go beyond that once you recognize that the world isn't static. And it's also worth mentioning uh, what economists call the lump of labor fallacy, the idea that there's a fixed number of jobs in the world. In reality, there isn't because how many jobs there can be depends on uh, demand, innovation, productivity, and other kinds of factors. Uh, so it's not like there's only, say, a million jobs available in a particular area. And if I take one, that means there's one less for everybody else. In the very short term, that's in some sense true, but not uh, in anything uh, beyond that. Also, earlier you mentioned that economists estimate that economic growth, if all the countries had open borders, if there was a free flow of labor, that economic growth, I think you'd say, would grow by 50% to 100%. Not that growth would, would double, but that actual uh, 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 productivity would, would okay, double. Productivity would double. Okay. Uh, that, that, that is, that is the, the amount of goods produced and the amount of new stuff produced in a given year would be twice as much. Uh, it would be twice as great as it currently is. Okay. What about a case where most countries don't liberalize their immigration? So suppose the United States substantially liberalizes immigration. So we have a free flow of immigrants coming in, but other countries don't do likewise. Would could we still expect to see benefits, or would in that condition? We so see we we would harms? still get large benefits, but obviously not as large. Uh, because the U.S. is a big economy uh, with better institutions than at least most other countries, uh, there uh, there would still be a large increase in the over. There would certainly be a large increase in uh, the GDP of the United States, which would also ha uh, have an increase for the GDP of the world because the United States is twenty five percent of world GDP. So there would be a big effect, but not as big. If you imagine open borders in a country that's very small or in a country that just has bad institutions and therefore people moving there would not increase their productivity, many, not many people might want to move there, uh, then you know, the effects would might be there might be small or insignificant, like in the extreme case, if Zimbabwe said we have open border to Zimbabwe, if A, very few people would want to move there, B, those who did move there, their effects on sort of the world GDP would probably be very small. But if a big uh, developed nation like the US uh, or Britain or Germany or whatnot had uh, either open borders or something much closer to uh, uh, to that than they have now, then there would be significant gains, even though the gains would not be as great as if we did the same thing throughout the world. All right. Crime is, well, economists do study it in, in, in some aspects. 
And crime certainly affects the economy in terms of insurance rates going up, cost of goods going up, and the amount of money that has to be spent on law enforcement. From what you've studied, what is the effect of immigration on crime? Like, for instance, are immigrants more likely to commit crimes than native-born citizens? So in the United States, the answer is that they're vastly less likely. And this is true even for illegal immigrants, uh, um, that immigrants are far less likely to commit crimes of virtually every kind, with the exception of immigration offenses, which obviously natives can't. But yeah. well, actually, natives can commit certain kinds of immigration offenses, but it's just much harder for them to do it for various reasons. So for almost any kind of crime that you want to identify, uh, violent crimes, property crimes, drug crimes, things of that sort, uh, immigrants' rates are much lower than that of natives uh, in the United States, and the differences are very large. They're especially large if you control for age and sex, because immigrants are likely to be younger on average than natives, and young people, particularly young men, are more likely to commit crime than older people. But even if you don't control for that, immigrants still have lower crime rates than natives on average. Uh, you might say, well, Im even if they have lower rates, still some immigrants will commit crimes. Any large group of people, that will be true. Uh, if you really believe that that's a good reason for excluding immigrants, you might also say that's a good reason for holding down native birth rates, because after all, some children born this year will grow up to be criminals. That's almost unavoidable and particularly likely for relatively poor people. Uh, the other thing I would mention is that we know that one way to reduce crime is by having more police on the streets. And the vast wealth created by immigration can easily enable us to hire more additional police officers if we wanted to. Indeed, if we simply took the money currently spent on enforcing immigration restrictions and spent that very same funds uh, on, or those very same funds on more police on the streets. Uh, in my book, Free to Move, in chapter six, I do a, a rough calculation of this. We could hire many thousands of additional police officers, put them on the streets, and lots of social science research suggests that, at least in high crime areas, having more police on the streets can reduce crime among whether the, the criminals be immigrants or natives or some combination of the two. So if our goal is to keep crime down, a better strategy would be to uh, greatly reduce immigration restrictions, take some of the money we save uh, and spend it on more police on the streets. Uh, and obviously the additional economic growth and wealth created by immigration can also reduce crime because other things equal uh, wealthier populations are on, on, on balance less prone to crime than poorer ones. A key to having a strong economy is having secure property rights. Meaning, you know, I have the right to use and dispose of my property how I see fit. Not just me, but everybody. But now, you you hinted at that there are immigration offenses that natives can commit. For instance, I I would imagine hiring illegals, yeah, hiring illegal. undocumented workers is right. one of them. Sometimes a lot of that punishment for that is purely civil, but I think there are some criminal ones as well. Uh, also aiding illegal immigrants to enter the United States can be a crime in some instances. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and a native can potentially 
uh, a native can potentially conspire or promote uh, or abet visa fraud and other kinds of things like that. So, uh, so while the overwhelming majority of immigration-related crimes are in fact committed by immigrants, because by definition it's about illegally entering the United States or overstaying a visa or things like that, uh, natives can sometimes commit them, and this is one of many ways in which immigration enforcement indirectly, or in this case actually directly, affects the freedom of natives as well as that of immigrants. So in regard to property rights, if I'm a, a restaurant owner and the government tells me I can't hire I illegals, that's a, to me anyway, I mean, I, I get your opinion on it, but it seems to me that that's a clear violation of property rights. I think in a certain sense it is. It's either it's a violation of your property rights or it's a violation of your rights to freedom of contract or some of both. Uh, so uh, it is often said that, you know, that immigration restrictions just protect the property rights of the United States uh, because, you know, the U.S. government gets to decide who enters its property and who doesn't. Uh, at the very least, that comes at the expense of the actual private property rights of actual private owners who are restricted in their ability to use their property. They, they can't hire certain immigrant workers. They can't rent their property to the immigrants who are excluded uh, and so on. Uh, this issue goes beyond sort of the narrowly economic because it goes to the moral uh, question of what counts as a property right and how we should protect it. Yeah. Uh, uh, I discussed this at some length in my book as well. Here, we just want to make one small additional point, uh, if you indulge me, and that is that sure. if you really believe the analogy that's often made between, say, my rights as a homeowner to keep out trespassers that I don't want to enter and the rights of the government to keep people out of the United States, uh, and, there, and you say that, that the government should have rights over uh, the territory of the United States that are similar to those that I have as a homeowner, then that has drastic negative implications, not just for immigrants, but also for natives, because consider that I, as a homeowner, I have the right to decide what kind of speech is allowed in my house or what kind of religion. I can say only pro-Democrat speech, no, no Republicans, only, only the Muslim religion will be practiced in my house and none other and so on. And so if the rights of a government are analogous to those of a private property owner in their home or in their business, then the government could essentially be a totalitarian state. They can say nobody can criticize the president and be here. Nobody can uh, you know, can practice religions that we don't like. And indeed, you know, I, I can restrict the use of my house with rare exceptions in almost any way that I want. So uh, to, a, to draw an analogy between private property rights and those of the government with respect to uh, the use of, uh, of its territory is to make an argument for what is a, essentially a totalitarian state, uh, which I think is by itself a reason to reject this analogy, though there are other problems with the analogy as well. Now, traditionally on the right, they've recognized that secure property rights are necessary for economic growth. Sure. I, and I'm, I'm calling for you to speculate a, a little bit now. Why is it that they don't recognize that not having the right to the contract and the right to rent to whom I please or the right to hire whom I please, why don't they understand that that is a property right infringement that is going to have negative effects on the economy? I think for a couple of reasons, and obviously different people are different in terms of how they came to hold the opinions that they've 
hold and if for many people they just haven't thought of it in that way a second is uh many people sort of say well in, in just intuitively there are members at a club and there are non-members or members of the family and non-member and non-members of the family so well for natives uh you know there may be strong property rights immigrants have only whatever rights you know we give them uh and then uh, a third is obviously both on the right and on the left. There are many people who you know, will often prioritize goals other than property rights over property rights or economic freedom. So uh, they might worry that you know, immigrants with bad values might, uh, you know, might undermine American culture or immigrant voters will, you know, will vote for terrible candidates uh, you know, in the extreme case. They might kill the goose that weighs the golden egg by uh, by importing the kinds of bad institutions that they fled in their home countries. Uh, if you have too many of the wrong kinds of voters, I know this is hard to believe, but you might even elect a president of the United States who, when he loses an election, instead of accepting his defeat, uh, he chooses to deny that he was defeated and tries to use force and fraud to stay in power anyway, like tin pot third world dictators try to do. I know it's hard to believe, but such a thing could potentially happen uh, in a more serious vein. I do recognize that some of these concerns do need to be taken seriously. Uh, and the answers to them go beyond simply saying, well, you know, there's property rights and, and the like. Uh, and I do, in fact, address them more fully uh, in relevant chapters of my book, Free to Move, or in some cases in other writings. The, the argument about culture, that if you have a, a massive influx of immigrations, they're going to so radically alter the culture that we're, it's going to be unrecognizable. Is there merit to that? And, and if um, so, what is the merit? And if not, why not? So we can certainly imagine extreme circumstances where that would occur, like where the uh, the immigrant population is A, much larger than the native population, B, has very different and potentially harmful values, and C, comes very quickly. Uh, but those conditions are unlikely to hold in very many instances in the real world, and especially not with a nation as large as the United States. Uh, and moreover, there are powerful forces, which if we let them operate, uh, they uh, tend towards assimilation. One is that immigrants who learn the native language and culture uh, in general advance economically more than those that don't. And that turns out to be a very powerful incentive. And when you look at studies of this in the US, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, contrary to a lot of myths going the other way, the National Academy of Sciences, when they recently went over all the literature on this, they found that the pace of immigrant assimilation today is as fast or faster than it was in the past. And that's true even for groups that are sometimes thought not to assimilate like Hispanics. To the contrary, they actually learn English and otherwise assimilate pretty fast, especially when you factor in that in the second generation, if you ask people on surveys, you know, what group do you belong to? Many will actually not even pick Hispanic or Latino. They might pick white. And you can argue about whether they should call themselves white or not. To my mind, whiteness is a somewhat arbitrary category. But the fact that they do is a sign of their uh, assimilation. Uh, moreover, by having relatively free labor markets and property markets and the like, we can facilitate uh, assimilation and growth in the economy. Uh, finally, I would note that immigrants 
in most cases are not a completely random sample of the country that they come from. Those people who are willing to become immigrants on average are more likely to be willing to make adjustments and also on average are likely to be people who are not very happy in various ways with the culture and institutions of their home countries. So I not certainly don't mean to suggest what that means immediately or even at any point in their lives, they become exactly like natives in every way. Uh, but the same, but this scenario where they come and you know the, the U.S. turns into Venezuela or something, uh, that is very unlikely and certainly goes against uh, the evidence of 200 years of American history, where the vast majority of current Americans are actually descended from immigrants uh, from places which had various authoritarian institutions, flawed cultures, and so forth, and yet. Uh, they're coming vastly boosted our economy and society rather than harmed it. And if you look through the entire history uh, of the modern world in the last couple hundred years, there is not a single significant example of a liberal democracy whose institutions were greatly or, or, or harmed by uh, immigration uh, to the point where you know economic growth slowed or authoritarianism arose or even the crime massively increased. Uh, on the other hand, there are many, many examples of negative effects from immigration restrictions and also many examples of liberal democratic institutions being undermined by native-born nationalists. Uh, the rise of fascists, of course, is a, uh, a great example of this, but also people like Vladimir Putin in, in Russia, Erdogan in Turkey and other recent examples, native-born nationalist movements are far more of a threat to democratic institutions and other liberal institutions than are uh, immigrants in almost all real-world plausible cases. When you mentioned that th there's actually evidence that immigrants uh, acculturate much quicker than they used to or assimilate and, much quicker than they and, used and, to. Assimilate about the same rate. About the, the same, about the same rate. Better. Okay. Well, I'm sitting here thinking about why it might be the case. And it occurs to me that in the 1800s, for instance, if a family is immigrating here from, say, Italy, they're likely not to have had much contact with Americans before they get here, Right. But nowadays with social media and television and movies, music, there's so much contact between cultures already that people coming here are likely to know a lot about America already. So, so I think that's definitely a real effect. And it's also the case that today, much more than in the 18th and 19th century, the English language is the dominant language of the world. And also American popular culture for good or ill has spread to many corners of the world to the point where you see it. You know, if, if you go to many parts of the world, you will see American TV shows and other aspects of American right. popular culture. That does not mean that the person who sees this stuff is anywhere close to fully acculturated to the United States. And it does not mean that there aren't difficult acculturation experiences that people will have when they immigrate because watching some American TV shows or reading some American websites or and the like, while that does teach you some useful stuff, it is far different from actually living in the U.S., but it also means that there is less culture shock than there would have been, say, for the ancestors of most current white yeah. Americans or Asian Americans where you know, if if a, a farmer, like say a, a peasant from rises, arrives from Italy or from Poland in 1890, he or she doesn't speak the language at all. Uh, you know, he or she maybe has has never seen or or, or, or never met an English speaking person before they get on the ship 
and so on. So uh, I think that is a factor, uh, but we shouldn't overestimate it too much in that, uh, as recent immigrants will tell you, there is a big difference between actually living in the culture and merely seeing it on TV or having some knowledge of the language and so on. Now, I personally would like to see nearly complete open borders. That's not realistic anytime soon. What in your mind would be some immigration changes that could happen that would be good for the economy and that would bring us more toward an open immigration system? There is many, many incremental reforms uh, that can be done that uh, would make things better. One is we could liberalize the various systems of work visas to make it uh, more feasible to come in. Uh, we could allow a wider range of employers to make arrangements with foreign workers to let them come in and could let them stay longer. In the case of the H-1B visa, which accounts for a lot of work visas, it's difficult if you come in and you're working for one employer, you want to switch to another. It's often difficult. And if you try to do that, you may even end up getting deported. That makes no sense either from the standpoint of the liberty of the immigrant that he or she is tied to that one employer or for the American economy. Usually we regard letting people switch jobs as being a good thing. Uh, second, uh, the Biden administration has created a variety of private sponsorship programs like Uniting for Ukraine, but also an extension of it to a number of Latin American countries, people fleeing communism in Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. We could extend that to more countries uh, and we could also give the, the, the recipients of that the right of permanent residency as opposed to now we're only allowed to stay for two years, though that could be extended. Uh, we could expand the definition of who counts as a refugee eligible for asylum, uh, which currently uh, includes only people fleeing persecution on the base of race, religion, ethnicity, gender, or being a member of of a particular political opinion or social group. We can expand that to people living in highly oppressive governments more generally, what I in one of my works call equal opportunity oppression, like a person who lives in Cuba is severely oppressed by communism, even if he or she is not targeted to specifically based on their race or ethnicity and the like. And uh, there is, there in addition, we currently have in the U.S., a large undocumented population, uh, and at least some of them can be legalized. That would not only benefit them, but it would also benefit the American economy because a person who can work legally can be more productive. They don't have to stick to the black market economy. If they can work legally, they're also less likely to become involved in crime or other shady activities. Uh, so uh, there is a wide range of incremental reforms that can be made. I just listed a few, but I could list a dozen more. Uh, and which ones are more politically feasible at any given point in time? You know, that can be a tough question. Uh, but this is not an all or nothing proposition. Like, though, uh, like you, I would want a f f at least a strong presumption of open borders. But there's a lot of much less radical stuff we can do that would still be a significant improvement. Even if we just increased the number of immigrants went into the United States in a given year by say 10% more than it currently is, that's another 100,000 people every year. That's enormous gains for those people, but also cumulatively it's enormous for the US economy as a whole. I give some uh, calculations on some of the effects in my article 
uh, on immigration and the economic freedom of natives that I mentioned earlier. Okay, Professor Soman, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? So you can Google my name and you can get access to many of my writings. Uh, my book, Free to Move, which is about, in large part, immigration policy, is available on Amazon and also on the Oxford University Press website. Uh, and I blog regularly on the Volokh Conspiracy website, V-O-L-O-K-H, uh, hosted by Reason Magazine, and including there, I often write about immigration-related issues as well as others. Uh, and if you go to my website on the George Mason University page, or just Google my name, you can find my website. Uh, a lot of my writings are available there for free. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're always very enlightening. For now, go, go ahead, Professor Soman. Okay. Uh, for now, this is The Rational Egoist signing out. I'm Michael Leibowitz. Till next time.